Israel has resisted God, built golden calves, worshipped the Baals, and killed the prophets. And soon the ancient curses uttered by Moses come upon them. On The Bible Brief. Did you know that The Bible Brief is a listener-supported show? Consider becoming a monthly supporter at our link in the show notes. From the curses for violating the Sinai Covenant, from Deuteronomy chapter 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the fruit of your ground. Ever since Nineveh repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah, lots has been happening in the international scene. The competition between nations for land, for taxes, and for labor was in full force, and Nineveh was becoming the center of it all. Nineveh was a city with a history, a long history. In fact, the founding of the city itself is attested to in the book of Genesis by a man named Nimrod, a near descendant of Noah himself. The location of the city was a strategic one. It rested on the banks of one of the great rivers of the Middle East, the Tigris River, which gave the city a water source for sustenance and irrigation. But more than that, the river created a natural trade route by boat. From Nineveh, in the northern part of modern Iraq, you could go all the way to the Persian Gulf by river and ultimately trade with nations in modern India. The river opened possibilities for great enrichment to the south. More than merely the river trade, though, goods could also travel over popular routes west of Nineveh, routes probably in use since before the time of Abraham, over 1,200 years prior. It would be these same routes that armies would use to exert influence over territories in the Fertile Crescent, routes by land or by water, that converged in Nineveh. Jonah had preached in that city at around the year 800 BC, and there was an amazing and instant revival that had occurred. The wickedness of their corrupt practices were put away for a time, and God didn't judge the city because of its repentance from its sin. But sadly, this righteous revival didn't last. The people and their leadership returned to their old ways. Ways of worshiping false gods, of brutalizing and torturing their enemies and of many other kinds of pagan evils. Outside of their brief repentance in the time of Jonah, Nineveh is seen by the Bible as an exemplary place of wickedness and evil. Nineveh was one of the principal cities of a rising power in the world. 
one of the ancient world's great and famous empires. The empire, known as the Assyrian Empire, a dominant force that rose in the decades following Jonah's visit there. As the Assyrians rose to prominence and expanded their borders, they would use a similar playbook for all their military prey. First, they would try diplomatic capture. They would approach a little nation with little power to defeat them militarily, and the Assyrians would essentially say, pay us lots of money every year not to destroy you, and we'll let you remain as a nation. Often this worked, and the strategy allowed for the financing of wars away from the areas forced into paying tribute. But when this strategy didn't work, due to either non-payment or rejection, Assyria would try their next tactic, and this involved bloodshed. They would bring a giant force into the nation and defeat it in battle or by siege. Then they would remove the nation's leadership to be replaced by foreign leadership. But they wouldn't stop there. They would also ship out most of the citizens of the defeated nation to disparate places throughout the empire. The people would be taken to places of a foreign language, foreign culture, and foreign gods. What the Assyrians wouldn't have to worry about then was rebellion. With such a mix throughout the kingdom, how could any place unify enough to rebel? Now, as the Assyrian power meaningfully arose in the 8th century BC, it began its expansion campaigns in earnest. And this is where it crossed paths with the little kingdom of Israel bordering the Mediterranean Sea. Assyria tried tactic one first, a tactic that was effective for many years and through at least a few of the Israelite kings. This was a time of Assyrian growth, and through the decades, the empire's power waxed and waned in the region. One king of Assyria would exact tribute, only to be deposed, and then new deals would need to be made with new kings of Assyria and new kings of Israel. And over the years, as the empire gained further prominence, both Israel and Judah became payers of tribute. But tactic one only worked for a time. Eventually, there was a king in Israel who rebelled against his Assyrian taxmaster. Hashea, the king of Israel, chose to trust in Egypt instead of Assyria. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 17. Hashea began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hashea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hashea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Apparently Hashea attempted to be an opportunist with his tribute. Egypt's power had again reached such a level that Hashea believed that perhaps he might find freedom from Assyria in the arms of the Egyptians. This ended up being a grave error, however. Apparently the king of Assyria found out about the plans of Hashea and swiftly put him in prison before any alliance between Israel and Egypt could materialize. But that's not the worst of it, because in just a few verses, we see the sad end of the kingdom of Israel. We read, Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hashea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria 
and placed them in Hala, and on the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes. Assyrian tactic too was employed with precise success. The Assyrians came up against Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and besieged it for three years. After three years, however, the city capitulated, and the people were shipped off to different areas of the empire, with other people shipped in, bringing in their false gods and their false worship with them. But interestingly enough, in the midst of this great historical account in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, we get an explanation of the why of this monumental event. Why did the people of God, from the nation that God had chosen for Himself, why did they get exported from the Promised Land? Why did the promise given all the way back in Abraham's day, why didn't it last? Did the promise fail? Did God fail? We read this. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings that Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars, and asherim on every high hill, and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes, in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but they were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in Yahweh their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he'd made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. In a scathing indictment of the behavior of Israel, the writer through the Holy Spirit leaves no mystery about the reason for the awful fate of the kingdom of Israel. The reason goes all the way back to the exodus from Egypt. Just as God had promised Abraham over 400 years prior, he indeed had brought the people of Israel out from their Egyptian slavery with great power. God used the prophet Moses to announce the plagues upon Egypt, to part the Red Sea, to provide sustenance in the wilderness, and to be the one to tell the law to the people. God had made a covenant with his people, the Sinai Covenant, 
a covenant which stipulated blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If the people obeyed the laws and the regulations of the covenant, they would enjoy blessing in the land of Canaan, blessing like that garden of old. But if they disobeyed, curses, curses of exile away from the land, curses of an awful life outside of the blessing of God. And what have we seen from Israel since they left Egypt? In nearly every generation, we saw rebellion. We saw them make a golden calf at Sinai. We saw them threaten to stone Moses. We saw them complain in the wilderness. We saw them refuse to conquer the promised land. We saw idolatry in Moab with the daughters of the Moabites, forbidden covenants with the Gibeonites, intermarriage with the nations of Canaan, and the constant whoring of the people after other gods. With the split of the United Kingdom, things continued to go downhill. We saw not one, but two golden calf idols, a new unauthorized priesthood, and a new false feast. Baal worship, Asherah worship, prophet murder, and on and on and on it goes. It's a wonder that the curses didn't come upon the people of the first few generations after Egypt. But here we are, over 700 years later, and the people are as rebellious as ever. And we come to the point. The point at which God's patience meets his desire for justice. The shift point where mercy stops and judgment hits with full force. The point where God simply says, enough, away with you. Assyria has defeated the Northern Kingdom. Israel is an exile with no false gods to save them. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023